This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to Streetwise, the podcast extension of the Pitch in Kansas City. I'm your host, Brock Wilbur. Uh, I'm also the editor-in-chief of The Pitch. How are you doing out there? I'm back home. Where did I go? I went to Los Angeles, my other home, uh, for a wedding. My friend Derek was the best man at my wedding. Uh, and when it came time for his wedding, he was like, so I have a lot of brothers. And I was like, I, I, I know I'm not going to be in the wedding party, but he's like, you're going to run the wedding after party you're going to be emc on everything and i was like oh i appreciate that you know that <laughs> even if it's not my wedding i should still have some spotlight because that's what my personality needs and he's like i didn't say that i was like i didn't admit but still kind of a little bit and you're you're not wrong uh so his wedding was actually scheduled uh for last year and in february uh i was getting the news reports that um Travel was shutting down with Italy, and the wedding was set to be in Italy. And so I texted him to say, like, I'm not sure your wedding in the summer is going to happen in Italy. And he called me back to say, why is that? Because I'm in Italy right now looking at locations where we're getting it all put together. Uh, and I was like, hey, so the the airports are shutting down. How fast can you get to the airport? Can you physically run there? Right now, you and you and your bride to be, because uh, you you want to be back in America and not in Italy for what's coming. Which, to be fair, I was wrong about. They would have had a much more fun time in Italy. Probably would have cost a lot more. Is what it is. So uh, <laughs> they actually kept rescheduling it, trying for Italy throughout the year, just like any band that was like, oh, we'll just push this show till September. Come September, everything will be fine. Um, so the wedding finally happened in Los Angeles last weekend. Me and my sister flew out there together. Uh, Derek, uh, when I was in college, uh, we lived in the same frat house together. My little sister would come to visit, and Derek was often a better big brother than I was for looking out for her in a place where she should not have come to visit. Uh, <laughs> so it, it was one of those things that, like, we're all just so close. Uh, it was fun, except for when you're at a wedding with a bunch of people that don't really know you. Everyone thinks that uh, maybe the two of you are married and me and my sister look exactly alike. And it, there was a lot of, no, please don't make this weird. I know that you know that we're from Kansas, but no, it's not one of those. Um, so it was um, it was a fascinating time. Mostly it was a fascinating time because this is the first time I've been on a plane in almost two years uh, and going into an airport where... Uh, all the distancing stuff is out the window, being on a plane where all the distancing stuff is out the window. It was, it was really interesting to squeeze in next to some strangers uh, and, and wear masks for four hours at a time uh, for these flights. I don't know, a real odd feeling that was that was met and countered by the fact that the wedding and the rehearsal dinner were outside in Los Angeles on cliffs that overlooked the Pacific Ocean with an incredible breeze and were in these beautiful, beautiful, completely off-the-map places uh, where it, it was the first event that I could go to and when people took the masks off, it was fine. There was no one close to me. Everyone had all their space. There was the, the Pacific wind. It was... 
It was just nice to be able to, because like, at least they had the foresight to be like, there's going to be people like Brock that try to wear their masks through everything. So at least they distributed masks that had their name and the wedding date on them, because otherwise there'd be wedding photos that have me wearing masks where I look like the Joker or Hellraiser or whatever, because those are the masks that I have accumulated this year. So at least we got to classy it up a bit. Anyway, congrats to Derek and Elena. It was a wonderful time, but also I'm glad to be back and don't look forward to traveling again. Like it was also a reminder that like travel is kind of terrible. Like everything costs too much money. People are, are genuinely a bit mean to each other. Um, we were, we were not flying spirit, but we were next to the gate for a spirit and like, uh, God, I can go on about that airline for forever and just how awful it is to the people that work there, the people that fly on it, et cetera, et cetera. But there were signs up everywhere about like, if you don't turn over your bag early to, to pay the extra fee for it, you'll be charged double. Lots of like weird, like post-apocalyptic cop crap that was like, you'd better turn yourself in in this dystopian way. And I was like, Oh God, is this what we're fighting to come back to? Uh, so it was, it was nice to see friends. It was nice to see people get married and have a wonderful time. Uh, it was nice to, to cry for a nice reason. Uh, D Derek's vows were, were so perfect and wonderful, uh, and came from a man who I have never been, uh, that I have never seen been sincere in his entire life. And so I started crying. I was like, how did Derek get me? Oh, I, I, I've never heard him talk about feelings in the 15 years that we've known each other. So, um. Excited to have that one in the books. Anyway, have a great episode of Streetwise today for you. Uh, what we've got coming up, uh, we have an interview with my friend Ben uh, about his book about race relations uh, in the modern era. And uh, there's a lot there. Uh, we have Next Music Corner as always. But first up, uh, our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment is doing a reading of the cover story from our most recent episode <laughs> is doing a reading of our most recent uh, publication of the print magazine of The Pitch. Uh, our cover story is uh, Sulk Smash by Liz Cook, and it is about going to uh, break stuff rooms uh, to, uh, to reclaim a little of your power and get over the depression that was 2020. Uh, Jason, take it away. Sulk Smash, to quote the philosopher Durst, Give Me Something to Break, by Liz Cook. I am not a person who is prone to physical manifestations of anger. The rage I feel is a writer's rage, the simmering, impotent rage that comes from having very small triceps and the shapeless body of an eel. And yet I feel drawn, like an eel, to a crayfish, to Smash House, a collection of rage rooms in the West Bottoms. At Smash House, you can pay a stranger to break small appliances with a baseball bat. I found something intoxicating about the idea that, for once, I could ruin things on purpose. Plus, the paper would pay for it. Editors note she did not run this expense by us, but by nature of being published in the pitch, this statement is now unquestionably true. Well played. Here are some facts about Smash House. It opened in December in the basement of the High V Arena. It has concrete floors and the acoustics of a trash compactor. Its logo features an enormous bare foot hadoukening through some drywall. You are not allowed to visit Smash House with bare feet. The business is the brainchild of Tim Hayes Jr., pastor at the 24-hour Faith Training Center. The connections between worship and wailing on a washing machine weren't obvious to me, but Hayes makes them sound inevitable. He believes in the power of prayer, saying, I understand that there are times in life when we need physical therapy, and not just spiritual therapy. 
I thought about that while I watched a dog that looked like Beethoven take a massive shit in the Smash House parking lot. It seemed like a good omen. I was waiting for my friend Taylor, who hasn't yet learned to ignore my texts. I booked us a 15-minute couples appointment. We are too mad, the confirmation email read, for 6 p.m. on a Friday. This turned out to be a popular time. We entered Smash House to a slapstick soundtrack of broken glass and aluminum rage. The cavernous space amplified every bat strike into a hollow scream. It was the aural equivalent of living inside a ripple glass bin. This did not feel therapeutic. I asked the cashier how she managed. It does get a little overwhelming, she admitted, then handed me and Taylor each a clipboard. We signed a multi-page health and safety waiver. Hayes tells me finding an insurer for the business was very challenging. And then an enthusiastic woman handed us aluminum baseball bats and screwed hard hats onto our heads. We put on work gloves. We put on safety glasses. We put on murder aprons. We were told a couple of rules that I couldn't hear over the din, but interpreted as, don't hit people with bats. By that point, Taylor and I had begun communicating entirely through charades. Taylor gestured toward a sign above the entrance to the actual rooms that labeled it a construction zone. She was saying, this seems imprecise. We entered the inner sanctum together and clinked our baseball bats like champagne glasses. Reader, we smashed. The overall vibe was less rage room than Field Hospital and the Pacific Theater. The room was an ethereal suggestion, delineated by black plastic sheeting draped over tension rods. But we weren't there for the aesthetics. We were there to wreck them. The room was filled with all kinds of appealing victims. A crumpled microwave. A washer drum. A large wooden box that might have once contained gardening supplies. Wine bottles and home VHS tapes polka-dotted the floor. My primary reservation was that everything was on one level. Because I am an eel with back problems, I tried tossing a bottle into the air and hitting it with my bat like a baseball. A large shard of glass careened past my cheek like an errant satellite. I did not do this again. Despite the safety gear, nothing about Smash House feels especially safe. That's partly what makes it so fun. For 15 minutes, I got to crunch over a field of mulched glass, studding my sneaker soles with shards. I got to pry a screw-studded board loose with my bat and send it spiraling across the room, inches from Taylor. I got to perform a gong solo on a washing machine. I got to be the ache in someone else's skull. At first, I kept looking over my shoulder, waiting for an RA to come in and break up the party. When no one came, the cortisol drained from my body. It was replaced by the mischief hormone, which has the tiny, gleeful voice of a goblin. The voice whooped, no one is stopping you, somehow. I ground the butt of my bat into a VHS tape until it ralphed onto the floor. The tape was surprisingly fun to unmake, but it still seemed like an odd inclusion, more so when I nudged its intestines apart with my shoe and noticed the hand-drawn label. I began to wonder if I was engaging in physical therapy or just destroying evidence. I paused to inspect the video cassettes while Taylor disemboweled a microwave. Most of them were scrawled with something sports-related, OKC versus Miami Heat or NBA All-Star. But there were some weird ones, too. A Good Day to Die Hard, 2013. Django Unchained, 2012. Hayes tells me he inherited crates of the VHS tapes from a relative. He'd only wanted the crates. Taking the tapes was a concession. A couple employees periodically slid into the room armed with more bottles and bootleg tapes for our deconstruction. They did this so quietly, I was terrified I was going to accidentally beam them with the business end of a bat. Neither of them seemed concerned. Everyone at Smash House is chill, presumably because they spend so much time at Smash House. When I first made the appointment... I had wondered how Taylor and I were going to spend 15 minutes just hitting things. Inside the tarps, the time flew. I don't know that I'd spend $90 on the experience again, 
but it was more fun than I'd imagined. I didn't feel especially soothed by the end of it, but I did feel like I'd had a pretty good workout. My only injuries were self-inflicted, blisters from where I'd gripped the baseball bat too tight. Smash House has cheaper sessions for the Rage Curious. The one-off appointments range from I'm Mad, 5 minutes, $20, to I'm On The Edge, 30 minutes, $100. Repeat patients can save money by going with a monthly package. The most expensive of these is $400 a month, covering two I'm On The Edge sessions a week, plus swag, and is ominously subtitled, For Anyone Who Is Trying To Take Their Life Back. Hayes tells me he hasn't sold any of those yet. We're really not expecting that kind of clientele until post-pandemic. As jaw-dropping as that expense might seem, there's a logic to it. Trash is free, but transporting it and disposing of it responsibly isn't. Plus, the fun stuff, the appliances, the electronics, can be tough to find. Smash House depends heavily on donations. If you've been waiting to jettison an old tube TV, you can call them up and skip the disposal fee. Smash House isn't asking for more videotapes, but I think you should throw some in if you've got them. At some point, Hayes is going to run out. His uncle has a DVR now. Today's episode is brought to you by Worlds of Fun. Worlds of Fun is now accepting applications for all positions, including ride operators, lifeguards, cashiers, cooks, and bartenders. All positions come with competitive pay, paid training, and best of all, free admission to the parks. Leadership positions are available. Working at Worlds of Fun means you will receive worlds of friends, worlds of flexibility, and worlds of experience. Literally, it's worlds of fun. This is one of my favorite pieces of ad copy I've ever read in my entire life. Whoever wrote this, like, God bless you. It is so <laughs> dead on, and I really enjoy just the mouthfeel of it every week. Uh, <laughs> I really hope that this is getting people to show up and take a cool summer job, uh, especially at a time when everyone is out of work. I, I just enjoy the, the phonetics of what you've given me, and I appreciate it. Uh, get a head start now on your worlds of opportunity. Apply at worldsoffun.jobs or text FUN, that's F-U-N, to 97211. That's FUN to 97211. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spacek, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Like many other musicians, bassist Dave Tanner of The Depth and the Whisper and Broken Heart Syndrome found himself sidelined from touring and performing shows over the last year. In the midst of the pandemic, the musician began demoing new songs, and by fall, the project had evolved into a solo album of sorts, as Tanner puts it. In addition to Tanner's work, Passerine Dream, both the name of the album and the project itself, features Eric Vux, NRBQ's John Perrin, Albert Bickley of The Depth and the Whisper, and more. It's nine songs of pure, sunny power pop with a hint of Americana twang. As I record this, the sun outside is shining brightly, and there's really no more perfect accompaniment. The album's third track, On and On, is a tribute to loving the one you love forever and ever, and it's just charming as all get out. You can get the album on compact disc and digitally at P-A-S-S-E-R-I-N-E dream.bandcamp.com, as well as pre-order the vinyl edition due out later this summer. Here's On and On.
So our interview today is with my friend Ben. Uh, ben and I have known each other for nine years. I think we've spoken on the phone once. Uh, we're those sort of people that have always interacted, always had projects, always had really fascinating things, but have always uh, had a friendship. Uh, sometimes uh, a bit of a jokingly contentious one, uh, lots of dunking on each other. Uh, we, we share a bunch of mutual friends, uh, and we just have a fantastic time being buds. Uh, and I have gotten to appreciate his career uh, from afar. He has a couple of books under him, and he has one that is coming to paperback right now uh, that is out now in the world that is called... Um, Sure, I'll Be Your Black Friend, Stories from the Other Side of the Fist Bump. Uh, and it's a collection of essays uh, about growing up uh, in a lot of situations where he is the only black person in a room. And not just as a kid, now as an adult. Uh, and what a lifetime of white friendships means. Uh, this is going to be a particularly fun one for our editor, Terrence, uh, who uh, him and I used to host an emo podcast together. And I think a lot of it uh, rested on some of the same uh, precipices of like, yeah, I'm I'm that guy at this concert, or I was that guy in my high school. And uh, there are things you have to adapt to, and things that you resent, and things that you wish people knew. And it's um, it's just a stunningly good book for that. We also had to delay this interview a little bit because. Um, Ben has been getting death threats uh, about uh, some things in his book from white people that are very angry about a thing that they saw taken out of context uh, on various right-wing uh, websites. Um, it's tricky, and this is just a really fascinating interview, and I am so glad to be able to share it with you today, mostly because Ben, first and foremost, is somebody with a beautiful voice. Let's just agree on that the moment you start listening to it. But everything past that is that uh, he's just brilliant. So uh, here, here is that interview. Ben, welcome to the show. Would you introduce yourself to the audience? <laughs> of course. Hi, my name is Ben Philippe, uh, five foot nine, African-American. Uh, I'm the author of Sure, I'll Be Your Black Friend, uh, Notes from the Other Side of the Fist Book. Hi, bro. How are you doing today? So I, I guess the first thing we have to discuss here is that... Um, you were my boss for a week, and then you ghosted a company. Uh, that This is nearly eight years ago now and remains maybe my favorite meet-cute with a friend over the internet of all time. What happened there? For the audience, I will set this up. I worked at a horrible website filled with horrible <laughs> people deep in the content mines, and my boss there in my department hated me and did not understand what he was doing there. And so one of my happiest days there was when they announced that Ben was gonna come be the new editor and actually knew what he was doing. And I was like, this is so great. And then a week later, Ben just stopped showing up to work. And then Ben just never logged in ever again or even told anyone that he quit. Uh, and uh, for a long time, I was just like, is it me? Did I do something wrong? Did he not like our first interaction? Um, wow. First of all, I did not expect to be cornered by the media like this. And I <laughs> off this mic and storm off the stage right now. Second of all, I will say, no, it was not you. I remember you pitched like the best pieces, the funnest pieces. You had some pieces about the um, Agent Carter TV show that was airing at the time. And I was like, I really enjoy working with Brock. Um, that is not why I just quote unquote ghosted. And I also, was it really eight years ago? 
kind of yeah i was just running the numbers it's like seven or eight and i was like ah the, we we have aged into mummies we have turned into a fine dust i i really I, I was like i was both angry about how long it's been but also just like me and ben have been friends for so long that is wild to me in my head it <laughs> was like three and a half years ago geez um and I resent, yeah, I resent the story that was told about me after I left that, oh, you're the employee that ghosted. I don't think an employee can physically ghost. I think you can quit or get fired. And I said- but you never actually quit, which is my favorite part, right? I did quit. I quit. Okay. I a very nice email to that boss in question, uh, whose name starts with an A. I sent him a very nice email, a very long email. I spent like all weekend clearing my inbox, like pieces I had to edit pieces that were ready to go. Essentially, there was a ghost, Ben Philippe, that was just ready to publish post for two days. And I just sent him an email saying like, hey, I don't think I'm a good fit for this. And truly, I wasn't made for it. Like the pieces I was writing um, weren't good. They were filled with typos. There's a type of writer that's like really good at writing like 15 pieces a day, uh -huh. all solid. I'm not that person. And so, like, I was sending my pieces to proofing for grammar and stuff, and they'd be like, do you not know how a sentence work? They wouldn't say that, but that would sort of be, like, the nature of the feedback, and that's because I'm not made for 15 pieces a day. Um, so I very kindly quit, and then apparently I got, the like, the reputation of being a ghoster, which is especially bullcrap, because I know <laughs> we have friends in common who were fired like who'd been there for years, who are just, they mm. came to work one Monday and they were just fired. They were like, oh yeah, yeah, uh, don't drop your bag, don't take off your coat, you're fired. So there's, there's one of them that I found out that they were fired because a different employee uh, saw them on the subway that night uh, on a different platform, uh, two platforms down, uh, sobbing uncontrollably. And they were like, oh, I guess she got fired. It was, it was like, no one saw you crying in public, so we never knew if you'd technically left. That is wild, that place was just, out of control um and it was all run like they changed offices a few times but for me it was i would say like a very nice brooklyn condo that had like 27 bodies in it it was that era where like um working in the media in new york city was felt like its own cool paycheck like oh you make like two thousand dollars a month you're miserable you're spending an hour and a half in the subway twice a day but at least you get to tell the world you're a TV editor. And then I, right. just, I just, I just politely quit. So we're here not to talk about uh, <laughs> personal slights against me, um, which also a uh, great dunk you did on capitalism in general. Like it's totally fine. Um, we are here today to talk about the, the book that you've just released. Uh, sure. I'll be your black friend notes from the other side of the fist bump. Uh, so, so to start with, this isn't your debut book. It is your debut uh, sort of collection of memoir essay type things. Uh, but you are also the author of the Field Guide to the North American Teenager, uh, which is sort of uh, it's like a a fictionalized version of your same life story. I I find it so fascinating that like you you got to do sort of you in a in a in a very different way in a fiction version, and then you sat down and you're like, actually the real stuff is much more interesting. What, how, how, did you, how did you go from one to the other? What is the process like there? Uh, I feel like when I was writing like the fictional YA book, I didn't think I was writing me. I thought I was writing a fictional 
teenager who just happened to be black and happened to be from Canada, but was really moody as hell and snarky. I don't know where you're trying to draw a line between that and being you. What is? (laughs) I seriously thought that was completely different. I mean, the character of Norris Kaplan is supposed to be like, I would say 23% more of an asshole than me, which to me is a very wide margin, but everybody was just like, no, this is you. This is absolutely just... Being in your I, head. I do so, have to tell you um, a, a, a I, thing I that t- I've kept inside for a couple of years now uh, that I've just, I, I, it, it wouldn't make sense in a DM. And it's one of those things that's like, when we meet face to face, which this is the closest we're certainly going to get anytime soon, uh, is that I always, I was like, your self insert in this story is, is under the name Norris Kaplan. Um, and for years, whenever I write something fictional about my own life or think about like, the name I would use to check into a hotel under a different name or whatever. That name is August Norris. And I was like, there's something very special about the two of us being like the other version of me or the, or the thing that maybe I look or feel like is some sort of Norris. I think people would buy that if they saw me. <laughs> I feel like there's a scenario where we both like check into the same hotel and then there's a, a stranger on the train situation where we agree to fix each other's lives. I was going to say, uh, fix each other's someone, lives is not the premise of strangers on a train. I guess it is uh, from one perspective, but sure. Yeah, from the character of Bruno's perspective, you know what? That movie is one of my biggest gripes. Uh, this is not a Mark interview. I'm so sorry. But I, from my perspective, Bruno, the quote-unquote psychopath, just held on to his end of the bargain hey, I'm going to kill someone for you and then you're going to kill someone for me. And then the main guy just decides like, no, I don't want to kill anyone after all. Too late. I killed someone. Now I have to ruin your life. It's your fault. Anyway. We live, we, we live in a society. That's, that's all we have to take from that. So yeah, uh, sure, I'll be your black friend. From the moment that your title was announced, I was like, ah, oh, fuck. This is the book that Ben was born to write. And I didn't even know if it was essays yet or not. I was just like, I, I know that you're... That is forever the thing that your name should be associated with. And and it's so wonderful that it's such a great fucking book. Um, You you pitched like, I'm going to talk about what it's like to be tokenized, but still in genuine human friendships. And how like, like a series of microaggressions that white people aren't aware of. And you pitched this before we entered into a year where uh, suddenly white people wanted to buy every book they can about like, hey, what am I doing wrong? Am I am I not doing good uh, towards the blacks? Because I, I I need a book to explain to me where where I'm doing that. Which uh, if if anyone's unaware, um, over the summer during the protests, white people across the country uh, pre-ordered and put reservations in for all sort of books about anti-racism and and the history of black protests, and then a lot of them never went to pick them up. So there is there was there was a problem where uh, a bunch of these books sold out very quickly and then there was a problem where it turns out a lot of them just sat on shelves collecting dust because the moment passed. There was a week where everyone cared and then it was, uh, it was sort of a trickle down. So like you pitched this before we got into that period. Who is this book for? Was it meant to be for like I would like to let you know about these things and how it feels so you can empathize and understand, or was it to just get the frustration off? What percentage of, of different uh, motivations did you have when you sat down with this? <laughs> hmm, that's a good question. First of all, I did not know about those books not getting picked up. I think that's, that's kind of amazing. And at least they went through the step of not just like sending Venmo donations to random black people. Um, I would say this book was mm-hmm. primarily for me 
like I, I'm a 32 year old writer, so I'm that obnoxious person who's like, I think it's time for a memoir. I've never been to war. That's a great. You like, waited till your 30s, and uh, I just and that's fine. I I've edited that, memoirs from 22 year olds. I I know what it's like to ha- try to tell a story when you have no fucking story. So like you waited. You're you're fine. You're you're you get a pass. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and to be clear, there are a few essays in there that are just like, this could have easily been an email to my ex, um, but let's just turn it into a memoir. And I think it was honestly for me just to process the fact that I had a lot, I have a lot of white people in my life. And I don't say this as like a slight against those people. I love those people, but I've been um, the black guy in white spaces. Since you're you're, you're a Canadian Canada, academic, even back like, in Haiti. not traditionally a black space. <laughs> No, not not quite so, especially since like we moved there when I was like six from Haiti and like we didn't even move to a city. We moved to like a township two hours from Montreal. And um, yeah, I'm used to being like the black kid in school. And I think the thing with microaggressions is that, I don't know, a few years ago, it became a term that everyone knew. But for the longest time, you just didn't know or internalize or realize or process these things. And I think the book was just for me to process them. And it's like, hey, that thing that happened that time, that was kind of messed up. And then, oh, that thing that happened that one time, it kind of affected me in a myriad of ways. So the book was really just like reflecting on um, living in all those spaces. And also, you know, the last few chapters of the book were written in uh, last summer. And I was processing a lot of feelings about race in America. I think uh, I say so in the book, but... uh, being an Haitian immigrant in Canada hadn't really prepared me to be a black man in America. It's a whole different ball game. And I just wanted to like process these stories, but I also like, I, I like making people laugh. I think my YA books are primarily supposed to be sort of like funny with maybe a few nuggets of insights for selfish teenagers in there. Um, and in a way my nonfiction book is the same thing. And I just wanted to like be light about it. Cause I think one of, I can say that like, you know, ah, surrounded by white people, isn't it the worst? No, it's not. Cause I, I've gotten used to having some conversations that uh, I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I think I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm comfortable having a loaded conversation with someone who's like genuinely my friend. I don't doubt their friendship, but their family has voted Republican um since they were a kid and they voted republican uh four years ago and they voted republican last year um and here i was like sitting across from them having a conversation about politics so it can be kind of a minefield to navigate but i i've had those conversations and i try to get at some sort of not wisdom god um some sort of like insight or conclusion from having um all those conversations. And yeah, that's, I think that's at the heaviest, that is what the book is. And um, I do think that creating empathy is more powerful than just like wagging a figure, a finger at, pimp, at people. God, I can't even talk. I promise I can hopefully write better. Um, so I can't like give you a dissertation on why you shouldn't use the N word. I can't. Like that book probably exists out there. But I can reflect on like a handful of times that I've been called the N-word and it hurt my feelings and what the circumstances were. And if you hopefully like the quote unquote character created in the book, maybe you'll think twice about using it in the future or you'll see why that word is so 
uh, powerful in today's America. And that it, it is very fascinating that the last couple of chapters, uh, the rest of the book kind of feels like it could have happened at literally any point in your life. And then the last couple of chapters, you can tell like, oh, I know what month this was written in and and I know what sort of pivot happened here and it becomes, but it's it's not like it's a jarring transition. It is, um, it is so much of what you've said elsewhere in the book being made manifest in a way that it's it's not like there is this general idea of things. You can be like, here is a date and a time and the names of people that are involved in it that proves a thesis that I started with here. And I, I, I think that like you've hit on what it, <laughs> A, a podcast uh, that I that I uh, work uh, on uh, recently had Will Smith on, and out of nowhere, he he offered up that um, he's been called the N word exactly three times in his life. And I I I I, I spent a lot of time. It, it was it was while I was reading your book actually, and I was like, this is so fascinating because first of all, I'm like, I do not know, even being Will Smith, like how you go through life that way because he wasn't famous as like a baby. I don't understand how how a black person in America can make it even that far. And it sounded like all three of the things happened to him much later in his career. And I'm just like, I, 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 can't, I, I can't fathom like the number being so low, but also who tries that on Will Smith? There's so many parts of it. So like what it got me thinking about in the book was why you, less so about the question of like, can you write a memoir at 32? It is the question of like, when do you, you because you say that you can't write a book about like why people shouldn't say the N word, but you do tackle a lot about like slurs and 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 stereotypes and like at what point are you like I I'm the person to put words to this? Is was there an idea that you were like, I will bring just my personal thing to the table here, and perhaps people will listen more to that. Or was it an idea that you think that you can sum up sort of culturally the bigger issues here and people might listen to that or a blend of the two? Uh, I think it was definitely the former. I, I think at its best, the book was meant to sort of uh, <laughs> not trick the reader, but sort of like give you um, the idea that, oh, this is going to have all the answers of how to interact with a Black person in today's America. But it quickly becomes like, very specifically about me and my life. And by the end of it, um, you know, I'm a specific type of person. By the end of it, you know me a lot better. And hopefully if you have empathy for that construct, you realize that like that level of interiority is not uh, a magic thing that I have. Every single black person, black body walking across America has it. So if you spent 85,000 words with any of those people, they would have, you know, a set of experiences you'd be able to look at and be like, oh, wow. Oh, dang. Oh, I relate to that. Oh, I don't relate to that. Um, I just wanted to sort of like fill in that uh, black outline with the specificities of my life and hopefully, honestly, tried as it is to say, address the reader as a friend. I think that was kind of part of the thesis of it that just like friendships are complicated for me in that like relationships have always been not easy, but like I'll fall into a relationship and then we'll break up and I'll still be friends or it works or it doesn't. Like the romantic um, Charlotte from Sex and the City screaming like, where is he? Like that's never really been a thing for me. However, friendships have been messier. Like I've gotten like into 
huge fights with uh, roommates I thought were my best friend. Um, I've been like super lonely moving to a state where I didn't know anyone. Um, am I going to reveal this here? Yes, I will reveal this here. I have been on Bumble BFF just because I think that's like, yeah, wow. Just control your face. Control your face right now, bro. Like, I'm being very vulnerable. <laughs> just like meeting people and like forming a a friendship has always been kind of like not difficult, but like a more fraught, uh, you know, but set you're, of waters. You're, you're such I just uh, want to write an through. outgoing, friendly, hilarious person. Do you think that like the the relationship problem, the 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 lack of human intimacy does that stem from something that is inherent in our culture is it is it racial what what do you think the hill is there because i i don't think it's your personality oh that's that's very that's very nice of you i think it's <laughs> partly my personality but else i i don't know i just think that like it's also not just like related to me being a black man. I think it's just men are different in friendships, like uh, how you show intimacy, like how much intimacy you can show. And those are all things that as we get older, we place barriers on. Like I remember, oh wow, we were, I'm really opening the kimono here. Um, me and my best friend when I was like 12, I remember we used to like smell each other's hairs mm -hmm. to just to see if it smelled different, like on mm -hmm. the bus. And, it was just, and then I think the teacher told my mom and my mom was like, okay, you have to stop smelling Alex's hair. Like, no, it's not weird. He smells my hair. Um, but then uh, the older you get, the more you realize that like friendships comes with, come with barriers. And now, you know, when you're an adult, like there are friends you only see when you're in a couple and only see every few months, even when you're not in a pandemic. So I think friendships are really, really fraught for me personally. I don't think they're fraught for anyone, uh, for everyone out there. It's certainly not part of the racial thesis. But I do think that like that allowed me to talk to the uh, to, that allowed me to hit different notes with the reader. Like sometimes some essays are hopefully really funny because sometimes you hang out with a friend and you just share a few laughs. Some essays are just like really angry and ranty about the world because sometimes you're having beers with a friend and you just get to rant about like, man, this I did not ghost that job. I don't care what Andrew tells everyone. That's not what happened. So you just rant at your friend and sometimes you just like share stories about your childhood and your parents. And sometimes you just throw book recommendations at a friend. You're like, hey, you should read this book. And that happens in my book too. It's just like, I read these books. They're fun books. You can learn something from reading these books. So I think that was the uh, perspective I took while writing it. Does that answer the question? All, all of my questions have been oh, 20 no. questions just because I'm so excited to be talking to you. So like, sure, if you answer one, it's perfectly fine. You, uh, yeah, Part of what you brought up here is something that like I, I've been fascinated by. Uh, because it started at the start of the pandemic and more, more than one friend commented uh, on this and especially uh, friends in black spaces uh, were like, hey, like me and the dudes have like a group chat where like traditionally no one says more than like two words like beers, K, whatever. And then when pandemic set in, everyone started doing like multi-hour Zooms and hanging out and talking about feelings. And for as much as like, everyone's mental health is fucking annihilated from last year. That was one of the things that I've clung to this whole time that I was like, there is a, I, I really enjoy the idea that this forced uh, some sort of toxic masculinity to leave, or at least men to be able to find a way to open up about their feelings because it was the only way left to interact. 
I, I completely agree. I hope that doesn't go away. Truly, I hope that we'll still be able to just like have conversations about the world, conversations about things we feel. Because I think um, there's that, you know, king of the hill setup that like friendships between men is just like lighting up outside of yeah, I, if I If I never have another every, chat, like that's just K or like an emoji or something like then Yes, I would prefer that too. <laughs> It's it's so bad, but I think it's all it's like all socially conditioned because if you sit down to have a conversation with anyone, like you will get to an emotional core. And I I like friendships where I get to see that. Um yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. Like the toxic masculinity of it is something um that I was very aware of. And I don't get to talk a lot about when I'm like discussing this book because I think people focus on the race aspect of it. To be fair, it is called Cheryl Be Your Black Friend. There's like a black and white outline on the cover. It's not like it's a reach to focus on the race a bit. But like, like, do not bring up blackness. I I, I am tired of of the identity politics around this. Uh, Yes, please don't politicize me by bringing up my ethnicity, bro. That would be so rude. Um, But I think the friendship element, like, is a huge part of it. When I think of the story, as like. Uh, yeah, race plays a factor into a lot of them, but I think a lot of them are just like clashes of personality, clashes of like, you know, dudes being dudes in their 20s, which are, it's just historically when we were at our best. Um, and yeah, I wanted to write at all those feelings. Like there are things in there, I, I write about like being a dude and super caring about my weight, like aggressively caring about my weight. Um, like when I used, when I was a, a chunky little bottle of whole milk in high school, I used to wear like an undershirt under my like sh- actual like school uniform just to like squeeze in my like uh, contours of my men breasts that were starting to pop up. And those are things that uh, dudes just don't talk about. Like you're supposed to. Just I, like, I feel oh, like yeah, I don't thirty care. has been oh, the I age mark where uh, where all of a sudden men feel okay to say like. By the way, I had an eating disorder in high school. Like somehow we hit that point a few years ago, and after you hit thirty, people are dudes can say it all of a sudden. Like it's 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 been enough time. It's been you were fifteen, now you're thirty. It's been double the amount of time, and now you feel okay uh, sharing that with people. Like between the sips of beer uh, outside the fence, you're like, you ever go three days without eating, just chewing ice for one single photo to make your ex jealous on Instagram? You, you and I are crafting like yeah. a very specific remake of king of the hill set now uh yep <laughs> yep we all have the eating disorder i i i think to to round out the interview here um we we won't get into it uh and uh it is reflected in your goodreads reviews should somebody want to see it but uh, a number of white people uh have taken some umbrage to a joke that you make about white people in your book and it is very clearly uh satirical and i i know that you anyone that actually read the book knows that you do not hate white people nor wish violence on them it's it's a it's a line and it's a really funny dark line and clearly some people have uh (laughs) especially all of the white middle-aged reviewers that seem to be popping in there uh, to give it one star that clearly never read the book which is fascinating, which also I've noticed across your books, um, the people that that give it the mid-range to low stars are all middle-aged white women who are like, I don't know why this person complains so much. <laughs> just like, oh, it's so weird to be Karen and be like, why do people have so many complaints? Uh, 
but the the question that it that it spawns uh, based on that, uh, and I, I I I am in no way asking you to answer this on behalf of Black people everywhere. Uh, the question is sort of like as as aforementioned, we went through last year, we went through last summer. There was not a great awakening, but there was something close to people, uh, white people, at least saying that they were trying um and ordering books and trying to say that they were there for this are white people actually doing better in the last year do you think or or is there just it's it's such a a big broad question but like as a whole do you think we're doing better <laughs> um if, if, if i heard you say that white people in general were five percent better that would totally track like if they at least knew like what a microaggression is or not to like reach out and touch anyone's hair without asking like that would feel better and i know that we, like there's certainly a, a percentage of white people that will always be bad until they die out and that that can't be accounted for but do you feel like any actual change has happened uh in in like the united states and canada <laughs> i'm an optimistic person when it comes to race relationships uh i certainly not every day certainly um these days I will say that I freaking crush Will Smith at his three count. I'm in like the <laughs> 300s this week. Um, I, I think we're getting better. I think like we're, we're getting more comfortable to discuss through the discomfort we have about race. Because I think, you know, we make now it's, it's common to make fun of people who say, I don't see race. Like we sort of look at that with a raised eyebrow, all of us that like, you should, you should see race. Um, but for the longest time, that was the correct answer to give. That like, I don't see this stuff. I don't talk about it. I just judge a man by the strength of their character. And that's a great throw pillow, but the world does see race. And that is a thing that we need to discuss. And I think as a society, we're getting more comfortable to have these conversa conversations to just look at the history of the world at the current state of the world and point out where things aren't great. Uh, so I'm hopeful that the world is getting better. And uh, yeah, maybe I'll just leave it there. Although I will say I've, I've tried very hard not to look at the Goodreads reviews. So thank you for summarizing them for me like directly into my brain. Super grateful. For I, I, I mostly didn't um, look at the ones from this book. No. I was actually checking out the ones from uh, North American teenager, uh, and and there was at least one that said, "Hi Ben," and in parentheses, "I'm pretty sure you're the type to read your Goodreads reviews." And it was a very positive review. But I was like, I I feel personally attacked by this one. It's like when somebody says, "Hi Ben" on Twitter, and it's like I I feel like you name search. <laughs> I mean, I I I will say that I used to read them a lot before, like the past two weeks and not to talk too much about it because I'm hoping, truly hoping that the conversation of this book is not reduced to that. But yes, there was an excerpt of my book that was taken, I think, in bad faith um, to come to the conclusion that I hope to gas and kill all white people. And I cannot stretch how inaccurate that is. Um, the title of the essay is Sure, I'll be your race wars. And there used to be a parenthetical right next to it that said, you have to say it like food fight. Um, and it's just, it recounts an encounter I had on a train here in New York City last summer 
where there was like a Black Lives Matter march and a man on the train was just looking at all the people and he just started to rant. And he said that like, he didn't like this and the only way this ends is in a race war. And I, I ruminated on that for quite a while. And I was like, well, if we can't fix this, if we can't fix racism, if we, the world doesn't get better, which I sincerely hope it will, then I think the end result is a race war. And then I, for a few paragraphs, go on to imagine what that would look like. I place myself in that, that war. Um, and I say that I, all the white people I love in my life, all the white quote unquote characters we've met through the book are in a room. And then I say, I'll have to kill myself to kill them too. So the room explodes. I'm like a suicide bomber on all the white people in my life. And I think, I thought the point of that section was pretty evident that like, we have to find a solution that I love all these people that um, to destroy them would be to destroy myself. I, I thought that conclusion was pretty clear, but it turns out that if you like snip like the right excerpt and turn it into a, a viral bad faith meme, you get a lot of one stars on your Goodreads apparently. So I think, and a lot of death threats to your personal email, death threats to your mother, um, calls to your job to have you fired, um, threats mailed to you in person. It's, it's very unfun. And I am therefore taking every chance I get to sort of reiterate that I don't wanna gas and kill all white people. I think I regret using the word gas because I think that imagery is a little too evocative to me it was sort of like fictional dystopian language but you know i think it relates directly to um very 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 like raw real world experiences that i have no right to write to so i regret using that word um a big f off to people who are taking it in bad faith to sort of like jump into my emails to say bring it on n-word let's start the race, race war and sort of you know, say crude things about photos of my mother. Never gonna apologize to those princes. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been a wild week and kind of glimpsing the cost of assigning violence to a black person in America, like the effects that can have on that person's life. Um, I'm still processing it, but I am so grateful for any platform on which I can say, hey, white folks, you have the Gilmore Girls. I am obviously on your side, like you raised me. You are the strong white women of television that raised me. So no, I do not want to start a race war in which I gas and kill all white people. Jesus. It is very funny because obviously the people writing to you say, let's start the race war are the same people that for years now have been like, okay, well, when we start the civil war again uh, between the red states and the blue states, we have all the guns. So we're, we're going to win. And I, it, it's rare that you get to hear somebody say that, um, I'm just looking for platforms where I can I can find new ways to say I don't want to kill all the white people. I will let them know. I, I will tell the whites on your behalf. This we can we can really wrap this up later today. Thank you. And I will. Okay. This this you may have. Are you going to edit this interview in any ways? You have, I don't you have think to, so, right? man. This this rules. You can't. Like, no, you, you might have to edit a lot of this out. Like the past fifteen minutes might have to all go. Um, the one. Not even positive, because this, this past 10 days I've been kind of a nightmare. But one interesting thing that came out of it is that um, a very 
I would say on the outside that this person had all the markers of a white supremacist. Uh, this person reached out to me early on when I was still sort of overwhelmed by the response and they did not call me the N-word. They did not threaten my mother with sexual assault. They were just like, sir, did you really say this about the white race? And I don't know. I felt messy. I just engaged. And I was like, no, let me explain myself. And then we ended up in each other's like DMs for like a good three days and until I had to just turn off the M's altogether because right. like, you know, too many N-words. Um, but, and I was just like, I, and, I, and at the end of it, I was like, do you want me to mail you a copy of the book? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And I'm trying to grow plants and I keep killing them. And he gave me like gardening tips. So I might've actually made friends with, again, I don't want to cast any aspersions about him, but from the Trump memes and from like the Confederate flags on his Instagram, I would not have kikied with this man normally, but like he was kind of like maybe my only friend on the internet for three days. So yeah, that, that was a weird thing that happened. And he, my plants are better now because of his advice. Love that a Confederate helped you with your plants. I, I also love that you, you, you've created a situation for yourself <laughs> where um, if somebody wants to start a debate about race in modern America, they can really just, you can be like, can I just send you a copy of the book? I already wrote down the whole conversation. I don't need to retype it in DMs. We can just skip this. And they can be like, sure, I guess. Let's give it a, let's give it a whirl. And credit to that man. I offered the same thing to someone else who uh, reached out in outrage. And they're like, no, you're just trying to sell books. Nice try. I'm not, they were acting like it was a trap in my big plan to start a war with all white people. I was like, no, man, it was just a free book. Sorry, don't yell at me. Um, but yeah, no, that was that was interesting. Well, uh, I've I've taken a lot of your time today, and I know you have a million other interviews to do. Uh, please. Oh, I'm sorry. I do not want to talk about my my plants and the, the advices I get to make them healthier through white like nationalists. That's not fun <laughs> for your radio show, Brock. Uh, you know, please spare me in the coming war. Where can people find your book? <laughs> uh, you can find the book at all bookstores. Um, please, I would say, you know, if you have the good heart to support a local bookstore, there's a website we all use. There's there's some shame in it, but we all use the website. But, you know, actual retailers of books are kind of suffering right now. Um, it's weird to sort of like walk around New York City and see old store, stores that used to be bookstores that are just like retail spaces now. So not even my book, but any book you can buy at a local independent bookstore, please do. And please, please, please order Ben's there. book and don't leave uh -huh. it on the shelf. Please actually go pick it up from the bookstore. Don't leave it there next to Ibram X. Kendi and the rest of them. <laughs> a sale is a sale, I hear. Just order it and leave it there. <laughs> ben, have yourself a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brock. And that's been Streetwise, the podcast extension of The Pitch from here in Kansas City. I am Brock Wilbur, the host and the editor-in-chief of The Pitch. Please check out all the excellent work that we are doing in the magazine that is available both online and in print everywhere that you can find magazines in Kansas City, which are in large red boxes that say The Pitch on them. You can just take them. They're free. Please take them. Uh, we are on the web at thepitchkc.com. That is the place where you can find us doing news, journalism, opinion and shit posting nearly every day of the week uh we are we're been on a real streak of uh real incredible work from some of our writers doing some journalism that no one else in town is doing and on some stories that are just 
quite frankly shocking. So um, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of positive things too. It's not all darkness and gloom, but some of it is darkness and gloom. And sometimes you really, really have to work to get to put those together and uh, couldn't be prouder of what our writers have been doing lately. Anyway, uh, if you ever feel like throwing a couple of bucks our way, please do so. Uh, you can find ways to donate over there to keep local journalism alive and well. Otherwise, be cool out there, be nice to each other, pitch in, and we'll make it through. Bye, 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 bye. This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.